we're back, bitches, with another episode of the Hello Sydney podcast, a podcast dedicated to horror lovers where we discuss any and all things horror. And it's me, your girl, Sydney. What is up, everybody? How is your Wednesday going? I said that and kind of stumbled because to me, it's Tuesday right now. And when you're listening to this, it might not be Wednesday. But anyway, happy Wednesday. So I'm continuing on with my whole horror by decade thing. And honestly, I'm having a lot of fun doing this because it's really making me like revisit a lot of movies that I might have not thought of in a while and I really do hope that you guys are getting some like new recommendations for it and today we're on to the 90s so we covered the 70s we covered the 80s so today we're on the 90s and I honestly thought this was going to be a short episode because I'm like you know the 70s and nine and 80s are like fucking stacked and like the 90s are okay um, but there's not as many bangers and I state my regret because there are as many bangers, if not more bangers. And again, this is why I'm having fun doing these episodes because I'm really just like, wow, I think I was kind of underrating the 90s for the horror game. But there are some absolute gems, some of the greatest horror films ever made, actually, I would argue. Um, So as usual, we're going to start with my top 10. And I have quite a few honorable mentions. And then on top of that, It's funny because in the 80s, I said how the 80s was like a Stephen King renaissance and also like a slasher renaissance. Looking through the movies from the 90s, I realized that the 90s is like the teen angst renaissance. And like that did exist in the 80s, you know, with like the teenagers, the group of teenagers at the camp and stuff like that. Um, But I feel like this is just really there's so many angsty teenage movies and you'll understand what I'm talking about when I explain all of them. So again, I have several honorable mentions and first I'm going to start with two honorable mentions that I did not include in my top 10 simply because I understand why people would consider them not horror movies. Like I usually do consider both of them horror movies, but I understand why people wouldn't. So it made it kind of easier to narrow down my top 10 by like considering them not horror movies. But anyway, The first one of those two is Seven from 1995, one of the most iconic like slasher serial killer movies ever. Uh, Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, Gwyneth Paltrow. Cast is stacked. Usually when I refer to this as a horror movie, people will say like, oh, it's not a horror movie. I guess it is more of like a crime movie, but it is absolutely horrific. So I could consider it a horror movie. And just the whole concept behind this movie, I think is so creative, like somebody killing somebody using the seven deadly sins. And something I love about this movie is Kevin Spacey, who, spoiler alert, plays a serial killer. Um, He actually was offered top billing in this movie, but he denied it because he didn't want people to know that he was the killer. And I think that is just like such a cool little behind the scenes fact. And the way this whole movie comes to a head with the whole like what's in the box scene and how that whole thing unravels and how they're both like they both represent the seven deadly sins unknowingly. It's just so smart and so well done. And this movie is just like like the ending I feel like leaves you so numb and it's so bleak. And honestly, this is this is a personal favorite. It also came out in my birth year. So shout out. And the other movie that I have as an honorable mention because it's like technically not usually referred to as a horror movie. This is honestly one of my favorite movies of all time, like outside of horror, outside of whatever you want to call it. And it's The Mummy from 1999. And I've like seen a meme. Every time I think about this movie, I think about this meme now because it's like, if you ask me what my sexuality is, I'm just going to say the cast of The Mummy from 1999. And it's so fucking true because I swear everybody in this movie is so hot. Like Brendan Fraser at his peak in this movie, Rachel Wise, Weeze Wise, not sure. Um, the guy with like the face tattoos, like everybody in this movie, the mummy himself. I usually do, like gorgeous. I was going to say, I usually don't even like bald men, but he's hot as fuck. Like the casting in this movie, top tier. And this is another movie that's like really sentimental to me. So like 1999, I would have been like four years old. And I swear to God, it feels like I watch this movie every week. Like when I was a kid, every week, I used to watch this movie with my dad all the time. He It was one of his favorites and it was always playing on the sci-fi channel. Like, I don't know if anybody remembers that, like early 2000s, it was on TV all the time. I think, unless my dad was just putting it in like on VHS at the time, it's very possible that that was happening. But in my mind, it was on TV all the time and I watched it constantly. Like I can probably quote this entire movie. 
which is actually probably sick, but I fucking love it. And it's very near and dear to my heart. Now I have an additional three honorable mentions and I went back and forth with all of these a lot with putting them in my top 10. So I feel like I need to mention all of them first. And obviously after I go through my top 10, I'm going to talk about some other 90s movies that I liked, some that I didn't like, et cetera, et cetera. The first of these three that I have in my honorable mentions is Clive Barker's Nightbreed from 1990. And I feel like this is just such an underrated gem. And this is actually a movie that I hadn't heard about until probably the last few years. And I don't even know how I learned about it, but I'm so happy that I did. And nobody ever talks about it. But if you are a fan of like more of like the sci-fi type horror, I promise you, you need to check this one out. You will absolutely love it. Basically, Nightbreed is about this guy who was being haunted by this nightmare of the city of like monsters. So he goes to his psychiatrist for help. And his psychiatrist is played by none other than David. Cronenberg, who is an absolute fucking icon. And I didn't want to give too much away, but this is literally in the description of it. The psychiatrist, aka David Cronenberg, turns out to be a fucking serial killer. And honestly, if I made a list of like the most terrifying masks in horror, this would be in my top 10 because the mask that the serial killer wears in this, there's just like it's so creepy to me because it lacks any like discernible human features and it's just like very uncanny valley. It's really creepy. Um, but it turns out that the monsters that this man has been dreaming of absolutely exist and they kind of like team up in an effort to stop the serial killer. And it probably sounds weird, but again, if you're like into like sci-fi fantasy type horror, like I promise this is the one for you. I love this movie so much. The other honorable mention I have is a movie that mind fucked me so hard when I first watched it that like I've been chasing that high ever since I feel like to get a plot twist like this. And obviously I'm talking about Jacob's Ladder from 1990. And this is one of those where like watching it now, I watched it when I was young. Um, but even watching it young, like the plot twist still shocked me. And this is one that like, even like watching it as an adult, I'm like, how did I not see the plot twist coming? Like, it's kind of obvious maybe, but like, and I wish I could erase, my, this is a movie I wish I could erase my memory and watch it for the first time ever again, because I want to like see if I would be able to pick up on the plot twist. But let me tell you, I was shook the first time. This movie just like beautifully shows a descent into complete madness. And there's another movie that came out in the 90s, actually, that I feel like does the same thing. And it's none other than In the Mouth of Madness, 1994. Uh, which is not in my top 10, but is a movie that I absolutely love. And it's actually a movie that I want to revisit because I feel like I will appreciate it more watching it now, um, like as an older adult and just like smarter, I guess, like I probably will understand it better. But anyway, Jacob's Ladder is just like, there's so many scenes and images in that movie that are just so unsettling to me. Like there's that one scene as they're going through the hospital and you see the guy and it just is like his torso and he's just like shaking rapidly. If you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like it's one of those things. And I don't know why that just like sticks in my memory and has stuck in my memory since I watched this movie for the first time, which was a long time ago. And my third and final, well, I guess technically fifth and final if we count the other two. Um, but my final honorable mention is The People Under the Stairs from 1991. And when we talk about Wes Craven, like obviously, Obviously, we talk about Scream. We talk about like the Hills Have Eyes. We obviously talk about Nightmare on Elm Street. But I feel like we just don't really talk about the people under the stairs. And it deserves to be talked about more. Like this movie is just so weirdly disturbing, like unexpectedly disturbing. And this movie also just kind of changed the game at this point for what horror was about. Because like not only is the main character a black boy, the final boy who survives is the black character. And I feel like at this point, like obviously, you know, there's the whole thing in horror, like the black guy always dies and whatnot. And this just kind of like completely subverted those expectations and leave it to Wes Craven to do that. But again, like while I feel like there is a comedic aspect to this movie at some points, it really is fucking disturbing like the whole like incestuous thing with like mommy and daddy and like keeping the boys under the stairs like it's really actually fucking disgusting and um it's one of those that just sticks with you and again like it's humorous at points but it's just so creative and so unique and again i just don't think it gets a enough respect and a lot of wes craven's movie wes craven's movies do and this is one that i feel like we just don't usually associate with him like, I don't even think some people know that Wes Craven made this movie. But anyway, so now that we covered those, let's go into my top 10. So I feel like the 80s was 
the Stephen King renaissance, like I said. But that renaissance continued into the 90s for sure. There were not nearly as many Stephen King movies in the 90s as there were in the 80s, I don't think. Um, But we got some iconic Stephen King movies in the 90s. And that leads us to my number 10 spot, which is 1990s It. And yes, I know this is a miniseries. It's not technically a movie. I don't give a fuck. I'm counting it and I'm putting it in my top 10. Like many people, I'm sure, in the world, this is the movie that made me absolutely terrified of clowns. I still, to this day, hate clowns because of this movie. I get uncomfortable near drains in the street because of this movie, and it will stick with me for the rest of my life. Unfortunately, like watching this as an adult, I think this is what this movie, like, I don't think it necessarily held up. Like, I think it's really corny at times. And I think this is one, and I think I talked about this in the 80s or 70s episode when I talked about Salem's Lot. Um, Because it was a miniseries, you can tell there's a lot of dead space in the middle that could have absolutely been deleted to still make this movie accurate. Like, it still would have told the whole story. And I think there's a lot of scenes that could have been cut to, like, lessen it into a full-length movie as opposed to a miniseries but really the reasons this is in my top 10 is because again like it has a sentimental value to me because I watched it when I was so young and it completely traumatized me and has stuck with me forever but also Tim Curry's performance as Pennywise and this is one that while I prefer actually the 2017 version of it that's actually one of my favorite horror movies ever I love the 2017 version while I prefer that movie I don't prefer one performance of Pennywise over the other because I don't even think they're comparable honestly like Tim Curry played his in a much more like comedic joking clown way but he was also still downright terrifying whereas like Bill Skarsgård's is just dark and eerie and like there's no humor behind him at all and Again, there's not one performance that I prefer over the other because I think they both took the same character and just made it completely their own, which speaks to their acting abilities, really. So yeah, well, I think there's parts of it that still don't hold up and it is like super corny. I still love this movie. It is very near and dear to me. I will always love this movie. And that is my number 10. In my number nine spot, I have a movie that just makes me so sad. And it's a movie that I just can't, watch as much as I would like to because of how sad it makes me feel. And it's The Crow from 1994, uh, which if you know anything about The Crow, the reason that it makes me sad is because of what happened to Brandon Lee. That's something that like, honestly, I think about so regularly. I don't know why it just like frequently pops into my brain because of just how unfair and awful and tragic it was. And just watching this movie, knowing that he like literally gave his life for it is such a devastating thing. And it's just like something that I feel when I watch this movie and it just gives me such a sense of like dread and sadness. So I have to watch this movie sporadically. If you're, if you have no fucking idea what I'm talking about, um, I did cover the crow in my cursed films episode, but basically there was a whole issue with like what was supposed to be a prop gun. And in a scene where Brandon Lee's character, who he plays Eric Draven, the main character in the crow and the scene where Eric Draven gets shot, um, the actor, I think his name was Michael Massey, shot the gun and he actually shot Brandon, obviously unknowingly. Um, And Brandon ended up dying and that was caught on film. And they did not use that in the movie, obviously, thank God. Um, I think that the footage was destroyed. I want to say it was given to like Brandon's family or something and I believe they destroyed it. Um, But I, I can't even imagine like Michael Massey being him because it obviously wasn't his fault, but like, how do you live your life after that? Like, how do you go on and act and just like, I I don't get it. I don't get it. The crew on this movie were like, understandably so devastated by what happened that they didn't even want to finish the movie, but it was actually Brandon Lee's mom and fiance who asked them to finish the movie because they were like, this is what Brandon would have wanted. And this was like his movie. This was his opus. And it kind of was the movie that was going to like, get him out of the shadow of his father who was Bruce Lee and he was going to make a name for himself and his life was cut short and it's just so tragic and it's just again something that I think about all the time and I just feel so terrible about it. So they are making a remake of The Crow which I believe is coming out this year 2024. I want to say it's coming out in like June or something or like April sometime soon and um, 
Bill Skarsgård, bringing him up again now in this episode, but Bill Skarsgård is actually going to be playing Eric Draven. And I love Bill Skarsgård. Um, I don't I don't think this movie is cool. I don't think it's cool to do. Um, I'm not familiar with like the uh, comic behind this because this is based on a comic book. But from what I've heard from other people and just like reading things about what people think, the Crow can be a lot of characters. It doesn't have to be Eric Draven. That was just one story of it um so they could have used like other interpretations other characters and they decided to use eric draven and for me that's just like not cool and i think people probably think i'm being dramatic when i say this but like i just feel like that's just so disrespectful to brandon's memory like i know it's probably dramatic but i don't know i just like he literally died for this movie like why can't we just let him be eric and like put it to bed after that because how is anybody going to follow that up you know i just don't feel right about it I'll probably watch it, to be honest, just to see like what they do with it. But I, I just, I don't know. I don't feel right about the whole thing. Anyway, RIP Brandon Lee. Um, moving on now that I've completely ranted about it and my feelings about it. But in my eighth place, I have The Sixth Sense from 1999. And this, like Jacob's Ladder, is a movie that completely mind fucked me the first time I saw it. And this is yet another one that I wish I could just like erase my memory of because I want to watch it again and see if I would catch the plot twist. And honestly, with this one, I don't think I would. It's another one of those movies that watching it and knowing how it ends and what the plot twist is, it's so obvious, but like it's hard to catch the first time. And like, I feel like honestly, if you say you caught the plot twist the first time, I think you're a fucking liar. No offense, but you're a fucking liar if you say you caught it. I don't think you did. I don't think anybody saw it coming. For me, what makes The Sixth Sense so great is the performances, especially Haley Joel Osment, who plays, um, I can't think of the main character's name, Joel? What the fuck is his name? <laughs> it's Cole. <laughs> I said Joel because Haley Joel Osment and it rhymes. It's I was like, Joel, that doesn't sound right, but I know it's something similar. Cole. Haley Joel Osment really just like dropped this movie on us. And then I feel like kind of like flew under the radar. And he absolutely deserved a fucking Oscar for this. Like I've never seen a child actor act this hard. Like maybe Jacob Tremblay and like more recent horror movies like Doctor Sleep and stuff. We'll get to that when we talk about like the 2010s. Um, but like Haley Joel Osment in this movie, man, is just so chilling. What a fucking performance for a child. And then another standout for this movie, obviously we have Bruce Willis, but like one of the greatest actresses of all time is in this movie. And there is a scene that gets me every time. And it's Tony Collette who plays Cole's mother. And it's the scene of them in the car when Cole is telling her like, oh, about grandma, basically. Um, Tony Collette's character's mother and how she says like she's proud of you or like or sh whatever the question that you asked she said every day and the question was is she are you proud of me I'm gonna start crying right now because that's just like such an emotional scene and Tony's acting in that movie I swear to god you would think that that is her kid talking about her actual mother who died because there's no way that somebody can convey that level of emotion without having a personal connection to it I swear to god and Tony has just showed us time and time again that she is one of the greatest actresses of our generation. And Hereditary is a movie that I personally dislike, but I think that is one of the greatest performances in a horror film ever. And she was completely snubbed for it. But that is besides the point. Um, the Sixth Sense is just a gem. And it's one of M. Night Shyamalan's best movies, for sure. In seventh place, I have a movie that I would put into my teen angst category. And that is The Craft from 1996. And 1996 was a big year for Nev Campbell, which like I didn't really realize until I was looking at this um, because obviously Nev Campbell was also in Scream in the same year, which I'm sure nobody is going to be surprised at the fact that that is in my top 10, just much higher up because I'm sure if you follow me on TikTok, you know how much I absolutely adore Scream. Obviously, Nev Campbell is kind of like a... Um, more of a secondary character in the craft as opposed to scream and the real like standout here is Feruza Balk as Nancy and like this movie the girls in this movie 
I want to be friends with them, but I am also absolutely fucking terrified of them. Like I want to be friends with them in terms of like, I want to dress like them. I want to do these cool rituals on the beach like them, but I also don't want Nancy to fucking look me in the eye or I'm going to turn to stone. Like I just don't know how to feel. I always forget that Skeet Ulrich, AKA Billy Loomis is also in this movie. So this was just a big year for him and for Nev Campbell. Like what a fucking combo. But this movie is just like so magical, but also just so dark at the same time. Like the scene of the girls, the bully's hair falling out is like always embedded in my memory at all times. Like that's just like such an uncomfortable scene. Uh, but it's just like such a 90s gem. And it's a movie that I feel like not enough people talk about. And God, like we are the weirdos, mister. Like I literally want that tattooed on my body. That quote, that line is so iconic. Nancy is so iconic. In sixth place, I have a movie that is a sequel to one of my, one of the greatest horror films of all time. Also one of my favorite horror films of all time. Uh, but it's not even the second one. It's the third one. And I feel like this like rarely happens where like the third installment of a movie is this good i guess i'm kind of lying because like nightmare on elm street um but i'm talking about the exorcist 3 and the exorcist i already covered this in my 70s episode but the exorcist is my second favorite horror movie of all time and i personally think it's like the scariest film ever created ever made and the second one is such a letdown like to the point where i didn't even talk about that movie in my 80s episode um uh, because it's just not good and then they come out with a third one and it's like, okay, you're expecting it to also not be good considering how bad the second one is. And I would honestly like almost put The Exorcist 3 on par with the first one. And I would understand and respect people who like The Exorcist 3 more than the first one. Um, because I think that's completely fair. Because the third one is a fucking masterpiece. So first of all, they bring back Father Karras. And that is just such a fucking power move. And this is another one just talking about performances that have been snubbed. Brad Dorif was 3,000% snubbed. I honestly think this is Brad Dorif's best role ever. Maybe outside of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But honestly, I think it's even better than that. Like, I, Brad Dorif is just such a fucking, like underrated actor because i feel like he played chucky and he got kind of like pinned as that we just don't give him enough credit as he deserves because he has so much range and he's he's just such like a method actor not to mention we also have george c scott in this movie from the changeling i don't know if i talked about the changeling in my 80s episode but like george c scott is another fucking icon like this cast is stacked the storyline is incredible and this movie has probably the greatest jump scare in horror history and i'm talking about you know it i'm not i don't even have to explain it like if you know you know but honestly this movie is like how to do a sequel right and um it deserves a lot more credit than it gets. So now we're on to my top five. And in fifth place, we have a movie that actually was respected in the world of awards. Um, and it's Silence of the Lambs from 1991. And not only was it respected, but the Silence of the Lambs is one of, I believe, three movies to win the big five at the Oscars. They completely swept this year. So not only best actor, Anthony Hopkins, entirely deserved, Best Actress, Jodie Foster, entirely deserved. Best Picture of the Year, a horror film that's unheard of. Best Director and Best Screenplay, completely swept. And I remember watching like a horror documentary at one point because like a lot of like it's very known in the horror community that like Oscars often do snub horror films. Like they usually don't respect horror films as cinema. And again, like that showed by things uh, like Tony Collette not even being nominated for Hereditary, like Lupita Nyong'o not being nominated for us, like these like iconic performances that get zero recognition. So it's just a known fact that horror movies do not get the respect that they deserve to the point where I remember hearing that I wasn't alive at this point for the Oscars, but during the Oscars, they kept referring to Silence of the Lambs as a thriller. Like they wouldn't even refer to it as a horror film because they didn't want that connotation associated with the Oscars, which is just like so fucking insane. So Silence of the Lambs is kind of like the underdog here because it's the horror film that made it and it's the horror film that got recognized and got the respect that it deserved. And I think it was a huge help having Sir Anthony Hopkins in it because he was already such an established actor at this point. Um, and same thing with Jodie Foster, you know. And the craziest part of this to me is that Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor for a movie where he's only in 17 minutes of it. Yes, 
You heard me correctly. Anthony Hopkins only has 17 minutes of screen time as Hannibal Lecter in a what, two plus hour movie? That's fucking insane. And let me tell you, baby, he delivers in that 17 minutes to the point where he wins a fucking Oscar. And honestly, Anthony Hopkins is probably one of the only people on this earth that can do that. I'm fact checking myself and I'm now reading one thing says 17 minutes, one says 16 minutes, but it doesn't even fucking matter because it's between 15 to 20 minutes and this man won a whole ass Oscar for it. Come on. Silence of the Lambs really though is just so unsettling because like there's multiple villains in it, right? So like Hannibal Lecter obviously is a villain, but he's also helping. And then like you have Buffalo Bill who's the villain and who's just like a sick fuck. And it's just, both characters are so iconic, but like Hannibal Lecter, his voice, that mask, like the lines that he comes out with. But I also love him because he's just like such a sophisticated killer. Like he's obviously so well-spoken and so educated that you're almost like rooting for him. Like you can't help but root for him and but like love him and want to kind of be him and be with him. I don't know. Is it just me? There's another uh, character in the rest of my top four here that I also refer to as like a very sophisticated killer that I usually kind of put on par with Hannibal Lecter, but we'll get to that because that's higher up. But in fourth place, I have the Blair Witch Project and I, <laughs> this movie I keep using iconic. I know I do. But the if they're in my top 10 for the decade, you're fucking iconic. Let's just get that over with. But what really makes me love Blair Witch, and this came out in 1999, so I was alive, but I was young. So I don't really like remember the marketing that went along with it. But just like looking at it now and knowing what happened, like this movie was the first movie to use like the internet for a campaign. And like it just contributed to the terror of this movie and the terror that it caused because it made it seem like it was real. Like I remember people thinking that this was real because they had a website like with posters of the three missing students or teenagers, whatever. Like the girl who plays Heather, whose name in real life is Heather something like her mother was getting like phone calls and mail saying like, I'm so sorry about your daughter. Like, please let me know if there's anything I can do. And she's just like, what? the fuck another reason that i love this movie is because of just like how chaotic the filming behind it was so i think it took them something like eight days to film this movie and there was like really no script like the crew which consisted of like the director and like probably some like camera people literally took the three actors into the woods and just started fucking with them like kind of gave them like general guidelines of what to talk about or what to do but like overall just started fucking with them to the point where I remember reading something from Heather, the main actress saying like, by day three, I was scared that this was going to be like a snuff film or something because we were just like being terrorized by the director and by like the crew and we didn't know where this was going and they led us into the middle of the woods and there was like no script and everything was improvised like we literally thought we were going to be the stars of a snuff film and we were about to be killed and that just contributed to the terror that they have and like I think Heather's performance in this movie is completely underrated because like that scene, especially where like I'm scared to close my eyes, I'm scared to open them. Like, you know, the scene, it's the iconic scene. It's the movie cover. Like that is just such like a powerful scene and just like an emo raw emotional scene. But like the scenes where they're woken up in the middle of the night, right? Like there's a scene they're woken up in the middle of the night and they find a bunch of teeth. And there's the other scene they wake up in the middle of the night and they find all of like the Blair Witch symbols. That was improvised. The actors did not know that shit was going to happen. So their reactions are entirely genuine. They would literally go to sleep in the tents because again, they spent like the full eight days in the woods and they would be woken up by the crew in the middle of the night and come out to this horrifying shit. And like, is it humane? I mean, I guess not really. They kind of signed up for it, I'm sure. Did they know what they were signing up for? Whatever. Was it humane? That's one question. Did it contribute to this mo movie being like iconic as fuck yes and i'm so glad they did it i can do a whole episode on blair witch honestly and now after this i'm probably going to because there's just so much that went on behind the scenes but i think this movie truly like sparked the found footage genre and it's still to this day one of the greatest found footage movies ever created it's like the found footage movie like it set the foundation for what a found footage movie should be in third place i have yet another stephen king adaptation and also another movie in the 90s that um the main actress won 
an Academy Award and was recognized by the Academy for being in a horror film, which is just like very out of character. And if you don't know what I'm talking about by now, then you've clearly never seen Misery from 1990. And the person who won the Academy Award was Kathy Bates, who plays um, the main character. So this is one of my favorite Stephen King books. And like the book actually is more brutal than the movie. So like I'm going to give something away right here. In the movie, she breaks his legs not to get away from him, from her so that he can't leave. Um, if you don't know what this movie is about, it's about this, uh, this author, Paul Sheldon, and he gets into a car accident and is found by this woman named Annie Wilkes. And Annie happens to be a nurse and like brings her home to nurse him back to health. But it turns out that Annie is a psycho obsessed fan and she just like keeps him there and doesn't tell anybody that he's there. So she nurses him back to health. He starts to get better. And so he can't leave her. She breaks his legs. And that's brutal enough as it is. And I think that's one of the most iconic scenes in film history. In the book, she cuts his fucking feet off. You heard me correctly. She cuts his fuck like axes his feet off. I think it's just one foot, but it doesn't matter. She cuts a fucking foot off. Are you kidding me? There is no healing from that. You now do not have a foot forever. I mean, like your legs, if they're both broken, probably aren't going to heal correctly like you're gonna walk with a limp like you're gonna be pretty but a foot a foot a foot you don't have a foot your limb is gone so kathy bates won the oscar for this movie which she three million percent deserved but i think that james can con i never know how to pronounce his name i think he also deserved a oscar for best actor and it's mainly for the scene where she breaks his legs because that's one of those scenes kind of like um the meat hook from Texas Chainsaw. Like you see her break his leg, but that's not even really the painful part. And you don't like see a whole lot. Like you see his leg kind of like swivel um, and kind of like go limp. But what really makes that scene so painful is his reaction because when he screams, it's like the veins are popping out of his neck. His face is red. I swear, almost like Tony Collette in The Sixth Sense, you would swear that somebody actually broke this man's leg because there's no way he can convey that much emotion and that much pain just by lying in a bed completely unharmed like they must have done something to hurt him because otherwise i can't believe that he would be able to do that and like james can con whatever can i'm gonna say can james can is a fucking icon like he's one of the greatest actors like the man was in the fucking godfather like he did a lot of shit before this you know so it's not like this was like he was already a ma like a huge actor. And I think that also probably contributed kind of like Anthony Hopkins, like probably contributed to the fact that this movie was Oscar nominated and did actually receive the respect that it deserved. But yeah, Misery is such a gem. And honestly, I would say that this is probably my top three Stephen King fil film adaptations. And honestly, it might be my favorite. Um, I can't at this moment think of any other that I like better. I fucking love Misery. We're down to my top two. And if you follow me on TikTok or if you have followed me on TikTok for a while, especially, I'm sure you're not going to be surprised by these top two. In second place, I have Candyman from 1992. And the reason that I say that if you follow me on TikTok, like you probably won't be surprised by this is because A, I've talked about it a lot. I talk about Tony Todd in this movie all the time. But also if you watch my weekly like horror videos where I post videos of all the horror movies I watch this week and rate them, the background music to that is the Candyman theme song because it is one of the most beautiful scores ever created. And it's like different than, there's so many iconic scores that we have in horror, right? So we have like Halloween, we have The Exorcist, we have Jaws, but this one's different because it's like beautiful. It's haunting. It doesn't scare me when I hear it as opposed to like tubular bells from The Exorcist that I hear it and it sends a chill down my spine. Like the Candyman music is just like hauntingly beautiful. And I think that goes along with the movie. And when I talked about how I was going to talk about another like sophisticated killer, I'm talking about Tony Todd in Candyman. My love for Tony Todd can like not even be explained in words. And I know that sounds dramatic for a person I've never met and who doesn't know that I exist. But Tony Todd is such an icon. And he's one of the few people in this world that I refer to as our Lord and Savior because I look at him as our Lord and Savior because he is a fucking, I would fall to my knees and kiss his fucking feet. And I know that sounds dramatic probably. I don't care. Tony Todd is an icon. And Candyman, I believe, is one of the most iconic slashers of all time. First of all, Tony Todd is six foot five. And even if he was like five foot one, the way that man carries himself is just so menacing and so intimidating. 
and just like so beautiful and just like the scenes in Candyman where he's standing there as tall as he is in that fucking trench coat like the scene in the garage like all he has to do is stand there and it's just it's stunning stunning and fucking incredible and again like as a killer in this movie he is just so elegant and so sophisticated and so well spoken and not to mention like this movie is the movie of like some of my favorite horror facts of all time so probably my favorite horror fact of all time is that in this movie the scenes where he has the bees flying around him he literally has live bees in his mouth and like I feel like that's just a level of commitment by actors that we don't even see anymore nowadays like nowadays everything is CGI like even like the 2021 Candyman. I really liked that movie. I did. But you can tell that the bees are all like CGI'd. And I wonder if like the actor was even willing to do it. Like I read that they had to do that because of like humane societies and bee societies, whatever. But like I wonder if the actor would even be willing to do it. Whereas Tony Todd was like, fuck yeah, let's do this. So if you've seen this movie, you know that he literally has live bees in his mouth. And he had this like guard in his mouth that like prevented the bees from flying down his throat. But otherwise, there was nothing protecting him. And the only way he didn't get literally stung to death was because he just like kept his composure and was able to just like be completely calm. And he's an icon for that alone. Like that alone, he deserves us to fucking worship him. I'm sorry. I don't. I know it probably sounds dramatic, but like what a fuck like what a badass fucking thing to do he also literally had it written into his contract that every time he got stung he would get a thousand dollars and i think he honestly only got stung like nine or ten times which considering he literally had live bees in his mouth and all over his face is really not too bad but i mean the man got like nine to ten thousand dollars for being stung by bees i get stung by bees for free all the time I actually weirdly like attract bees. Maybe it's because of how much I love Candyman. I don't fucking know. Like I wonder if bees like like certain smells like pheromone type shit because like I went to New Hampshire this past August for a friend's birthday. Like we do it for her birthday every year and we were on the beach and we were getting like attacked by bees. Like there was like swarms of bees everywhere. I'm the only fucking one that got stung and I got stung twice. Not even once, twice, two separate occasions. Stung twice, the only one. And they were just like attracted to me. I don't know. But Tony Todd is out here getting stung for $1,000 each. Thank you. What the fuck? Total tangent. But anyway, Tony is an icon. And I actually think of Candyman as like a love story. Like it's totally a love story between he and Helen. And like if Tony Todd looked at me and said, be my victim, I would melt into that man's arms. I would be killed by Candyman so fucking fast. Like he is so beautiful and so attractive. And just like his presence and like his demeanor in this movie. I'm so attracted to this man. It's not even healthy. Anyway, I can literally talk about Tony Todd all day. So before I do that, let's just move on to my number one. Does anybody know what my number one is by the way I've talked? And also just by like watching me on TikTok and by the name of my podcast. Yeah, shocking. It's Scream, 1996. Scream is also just in my top three favorite horror movies of all time. Um, three or four. I usually interchange. So first is Psycho. Second is The Exorcist. And number three, I usually interchange between Scream and The Conjuring because I have a really tough time deciding which one I love more. Now, I was born in 1995. So I was born a year before Scream came out. So I can't say that I was named after Sidney Prescott. But like the fact that my government legal name is Sydney spelled the same way, S-I-D-N-E-Y, which is like usually the boy way to spell it. Like, I just think it was meant to be, honestly. And I know that, again, like I've said a lot of shit this episode that probably sounds fucking insane. And you guys probably think I'm mentally unstable, which like kind of am. Anyway, I really do think it was meant to be. And I think that just like set me up for a life of fucking loving horror. I know it sounds crazy, but I think things are meant to be that way. There are so many iconic things about Scream. First of all, Ghostface. And what I love about the first Scream and like the earlier Scream movies is just like how clumsy Ghostface is and how like there's like that comedic element. But at the same time, he's also terrifying because he's attacking all these people and like targeting everybody. Um like it's not like he's it's not like an I know what you did last summer thing where he's like just targeting the friend group. He's really targeting anybody around Sydney, including like even her fucking principal. Like what did the principal do? This movie was also so iconic because it was like probably maybe the first movie ever, I think, to have two killers like 
this is just yet another movie. If I could pick one movie in my life that I could rewatch for the first time, like erase my memory of and watch for the first time. And I know I've said that about like three movies so far. Um, but if I could pick one, it would absolutely be Scream. And the reason for that is because I watched this movie for the first time so young that I don't remember the reveal. Like I just like feel like I've grown up my whole life knowing that Billy and Stu were Ghostface in the first movie. I don't remember having that realization and having that like aha moment. And I wish I could go back and watch it and A, see if I can pinpoint them. Because again, this is another movie that like watching it back and knowing it's very obvious. Like when there's that scene at the fountain and like Billy and Stu kind of exchange that look and Stu's talking about like, oh, you take a knife and you like you do this and like talking like that, like it's no big deal to him. Like there's signs, but like would I have known would I have been able to pick up on it? So like the killer reveal happens and you find out that it's one killer, but then you find out it's a fucking second killer. And like, pe- we hadn't seen that. Like people hadn't seen that before. So like, I can't even imagine like the reaction in 1996 when this happened. Like I would give anything to be in the fucking theater watching this movie on opening night when that happened, because like it must've been absolutely chaotic. This movie also has one of the most iconic final girls of all time. Sydney Prescott is just, my God, I love her so much. Like she's just such a badass, and she continues to be a badass. And like, I kind of lumped Scream 2 into here because Scream 2 came out in 97 and I just like love Scream 2 almost as much as I love Scream 1, probably as much as I love Scream 1, honestly. And Scream 2 is my favorite Sydney Prescott. It's my favorite version of her. And Scream 2 has some of my favorite quotes. It has some of my favorite, like, God, I just love Scream 2. Like my favorite quote in the whole Scream franchise is when Sydney says to Mickey, you're forgetting one thing about Billy Loomis. What's that? And she leans in and goes, I fucking killed him and hits him with the fucking frat necklace that Derek gave her. I fucking conic, baby. What a fucking queen. And just like, again, this whole franchise is so iconic. The whole two killer thing, the whole like trying to figure it out who it is from start to finish. I don't know if I've ever watched the Scream movie. So like probably I would say Scream, Scream 4 is the first one I remember watching in theaters. Like Scream 4 was the first one I was old enough to watch in the theaters. And I don't know if I've ever been able to pinpoint a Scream killer. I feel like Scream 5, I might, I kind of like had suspicions of Richie and Amber. Um, But other than that, I've never felt confident in like this person's the killer. And they do such a great job, I think, at like keeping that mystery, mystery for the most part, especially with this last Scream with the whole thing. First of all, with them having three killers. Second of all, with them having fucking Quinn die and they just come back to life, obviously, like that was unexpected. I've gone off on a tangent, but the first scream especially is just such a, like that was such a monumental cultural shift in horror, I think. Like I really think scream just like revitalized the slasher craze that we saw in the 80s and like, Yes, Candyman was a slasher, but I feel like he didn't get nearly as much attention as like Freddy did and like Jason did and Michael did. And then Scream came along and I feel like Ghostface came on the scene. It was like, this is it. This is our fucking icon. And I think it just like brought back a love for slashers because we kind of stopped seeing that in the 90s. And then Wes Craven came, RIP to a legend, and gave us this, I think, one of his most iconic films if not his most iconic, outside of Nightmare on Elm Street. Scream will always be one of my favorites. It's so near and dear to me. I share a name with Sidney Prescott, and I'm very proud of that. And I just, I don't know. I have so much love for this movie. I could watch all of these movies every day for the rest of my life and never get sick of it, truly. Not to mention, I just thought of this because I actually have a Scream poster hanging on my wall in my living room, and I looked at it, and there's a... um like an illustration of Casey Becker. And that's just another thing that made this movie so iconic. Like they pulled the psycho from 1960, AKA like they killed off the main character, like the whole thing. And again, I wasn't alive for this, but from what I hear the whole advertising, they advertised Drew Barrymore as the main character. And she was the biggest actress at the time in this movie. She had already had, she had like quite a rap sheet. Like she had done a lot of movies at this point since she was a kid and they killed her off in the first 15 fucking minutes. Are you fucking kidding? Like iconic. How shocking must that have been for people who went into this movie expecting her to be the main character? How fucking, like what another way to just like completely subvert expectations on Wes Craven's part? Like 
what a fucking icon that man was r.i.p to a legend pour one out <sighs> i will sit here and talk about scream all day i swear and eventually i will do a full scream episode and it's probably going to be like 14 hours long because again i can just talk about scream all day i love it so much but there's a lot of other movies from the 90s that i want to talk about because again like there's just so many hidden gems i feel like that came out in the 90s and like low-key and underrated decade for horror and let's start out by talking about the whole teen angst thing that I was talking about because again so the 80s had Stephen King the 80s had slashers the 80s had a little bit of everything it was very diverse whereas like the and like the 80s had like teenagers being killed whereas the 90s had teenage angst teenage anxieties teenage issues and like we hadn't really seen that before and I feel like these movies really just like captured the zeitgeist of the time with like the teen angst and stuff like this was also the de the decade where like grunge became a thing like Nirvana smells like teen spirit like that was like it was like a movement and it's really interesting like you hear horror historians talk about this stuff all the time too how much horror really just like captures and just like encapsulates what's going on at the times and creates like these narratives and these stories out of it and it really is like it's just such a smart genre i fucking love horror so much guys like i really do and this is why i really wish like the academy and people would like appreciate it more because outside of the horror community i feel like it really just doesn't get the respect that it deserves like a lot of people think it's just like naked people and sex and it's just like so much more than that and it really gets me upset <laughs> anyway teen angst so like I already mentioned this one, but we had I Know What You Did Last Summer in 1997, right? And like, I feel like this one was similar to Scream and like the whole, you know, killer slasher is after this group of friends, whatever. They're kind of picking them off one by one. Um, it was not nearly as good as Scream, but it's still very much enjoyable. And Scream is absolutely a teen angst movie as well. You know, like the whole, um, you know, like when you have sex as a teenager, losing your virginity in high school, like stressors that teens have to go through like that. Drinking, drugs, partying, like kind of coming of age shit, but like coming of age and trying to find yourself and like peer pressure. And then on top of that, like I feel like the teen angsty movies more so came out at the end of the decade, which again, I'm sure just like goes along with the times because in 1998, we got three of them. We got Disturbing Behavior, we got The Faculty, and we got Urban Legend. And I guess Urban Legend is more like college age, but I mean, really, that it's teenagers. But The Faculty especially is one where like the first time I watched it, I was like, holy shit, this cast is absolutely stacked. Like Josh Hartnett, heartthrob at the time, right? Elijah Wood, Jordana Brewster, Usher is in this fucking movie, Salma Hayek, my queen, Salma Hayek. Like, so many recognizable faces in this movie, and I love that they all came together in one movie. Fucking Piper Laurie, a horror icon. Like, what an absolutely stacked cast. So I think it was last episode where I talked about how there were years where, like, conflicting movies came out, and I feel like 1998 was another one of those years because you had The Faculty, which is about, like, aliens taking over the teachers and the faculty members and people at the school, and then you also had Disturbing Behavior from 1998, which is about like this entity or like cult like thing taking over their classmates, you know, James Marsden and Katie Holmes, like this cast also low key stacked, not as stacked as the faculty, but definitely a lot of recognizable people we have here. And then like another one that could low key count as a teen angst movie. We also got Bride of Chucky in the nineties. And like, I think that's teen angsty because like the main couple, Catherine Heigl and the boyfriend, it's like, okay, like we're escaping the overbearingness of our, of like, Catherine Heigl's stepfather or whatever uncle and like we're gonna run away and get married but now there are these killer dolls with us like I don't know I feel like that just like also encapsulates the whole teen angst and like teens wanting to like escape and like get have their freedom urban legend going back to that for a second like seven is one of those movies that I think is just like such a great concept such a unique concept like killing people using the seven deadly sins and then killing people using popular urban legends like what fucking iconic ideas they were coming out with at this time the late 90s is also home to one of the greatest shark films ever made and that's deep blue sea and this is another movie that just completely subverted expectations kind of like the whole like drew barrymore thing because i'm gonna spoil it but obviously like it came out in 1999 so if you haven't seen it yet what the fuck are you doing but like 
Samuel L. Jackson dying mid-speech is one of the most iconic moments and iconic deaths in horror history. You are going to kill off your biggest star in the middle of this like soliloquy that he's doing to try to inspire everybody to get out of this place alive. It's fucking insane. It was ballsy as fuck and it is legendary. And this is another one that completely changed the expectations at the end too because once again, black guy survives and the person that you think is going to be the final girl dies at the end of the movie just before making it out so the two men survive unlikely completely threw people off and this is one of those movies where like the shark is actually really scary looking so like i'm a sucker for a shark movie jaws traumatized me when i was a kid i'm fucking terrified of sharks and deep lucy is another one that i'm like i'm fucking terrified of this this shark looks way too realistic for me the 90s is also the decade where i feel like um foreign horror movies started to come on the scene more than they had before because at the end of the 90s we got two iconic Japanese films that like completely took the world by storm I think and obviously I'm talking about Ring uh, or Ringu I've I pronounced that Ringu before and then people told me you're not supposed to pronounce the U but then I've heard other people pronounce the U I have no fucking idea but the original Ring that like our the Ring from 2002 was based off of and also Audition from 1999 um, which is a movie that was created by Takashi Miike, who is, I think, one of the most interesting people that ever was. Because in the most respectful way, Takashi Miike is a sick fuck. And he's created some of the most disturbing cinema that there's ever been. So honestly, Audition is one of those movies that like going into it. And this is one of those I watched only once. And I watched it when I was like 16, because this was at the time where I had like my horror movie Tumblr. And I was hearing everybody talk about Audition and how disturbing it was, blah, blah, blah. So I had to check it out. And this is one that I do want to revisit because I liked the movie. I think it's a really good movie. Um, it's not nearly as disturbing as people say, I don't think. Like, I think at the end it gets disturbing, obviously, during, like, the torture scene. Um, but otherwise, it's really not that bad. And that might just be me, like, being desensitized. There is, like, this one disgusting scene that includes vomit. Um, but Takashi Miike then also created a movie called Itchy the Killer. And this did not come out in the 90s. So I'll probably talk about this in the next episode when we cover the 2000s. But like another just like sick, really disturbing Japanese film. But really, Takashi Miike created the most disturbing piece of cinema I may have ever seen, possibly. Like, I guess probably a Serbian film is worse. But like, Takashi Miike's imprint. And the funny thing about Takashi Miike is that um, the show masters of horror approached this man and said hi we want you to make an episode for our american television show that plays on showtime will you do it and of course takashi Miike was like yeah fine and made the literal most disturbing piece of fucking cinema you've ever seen in your life and expected this to air on american television we cannot handle that americans cannot handle that <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that they asked this man to do this thinking that he was really going to create something that was like appropriate for American television that Americans can handle is fucking hilarious to me because like we don't hold a fucking candle to Japanese or to Korean horror and like Takashi Miike is like the leader of like the Japanese horror movement like the disturbing Japanese horror movement other than that talking about Ring Ringu whatever um quickly this movie so the 2002 the ring is an iconic it's an incredible movie um the japanese version of the ring is scarier and there's just something about like japanese movies they're just so bleak and they're so ruthless and like just like foreign movies in general like japanese korean french movies i feel like they don't try to please an audience they just they don't give a fuck they're making their movies to be fucked up and however the fuck they want it. They're not making it to please anybody. They're not making it to like, they're not censoring themselves because they're scared of like offending people. They are putting what the fuck they want on that screen and nobody can stop them. And they're fucking ruthless and it shows. And again, like Japanese cinema specifically is some of the scariest shit you'll ever watch in your whole entire life. Other than like the foreign horror movement, we also got a few um, like sci-fi movies this decade that are just like really iconic. So one that people talk about all the time that like, I'm not going to lie, I'm not like the biggest fan of this movie, uh, but I'm talking about Event Horizon. And I feel like I talk about, I hear a lot, uh, a lot of people talk about how this movie like traumatized them when they were younger. And like, I could see how that would happen if you watched it while you were younger. I unfortunately watched this movie later in life, probably within the last like three years and I'm 28. So like, 
it just didn't do it for me. And like watching it as an adult for the first time, it's kind of corny and like the effects don't really hold up. But I totally get why, again, like watching this as a kid in the 90s, like this would absolutely scare the shit out of you. You know, it just didn't do it for me. But another another one that I did watch later in life that did scare the fuck out of me because one of my biggest fears in this world is aliens. And we'll get to that when we talk about signs in the next episode talking about 2000s horror movies. Uh, but Fire in the Sky. And Fire in the Sky, I believe, has probably the only alien abduction scene in a movie ever. I forgot who I was talking about um, this to before. I think it was one of my uh, TikTok mutuals, but we were talking about how like there's really no, there's a lot of alien movies, right? But there's really no other alien movies where you see a full abduction scene and fire in the sky. Just like they don't even just show you just an abduction scene. They show you fucking abduction torture shit i swear to god and like prolonged like it's not even just a clip it's like a long scene and it's so suffocating and it's so scary all the 90s might not be as diverse as the 80s we definitely got some variety because like we got zombie movies and we got dracula um and for zombie movies we had brain dead from 1992 and this is one of Peter Jackson's early films. And like watching this movie, it's funny to think about how he went on to create like one of the most iconic franchises of all time, AKA Lord of the Rings. Uh, because you watch this movie and you like can't imagine that the same director created both because Brain Dead is just like so over the top and so gory, but like in such a fun way. If you are like a gore and blood lover, this movie will satiate your need for blood. If anything, you're just like, holy shit, this is too much blood. Like I've never seen this much blood in my life. But again, it's not like an, it's in like a comedic way. Um, but it's an iconic movie. It really is. And then we got our taste of vampires too, because we have Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1992. Um, and arguably this is one of the best Dracula performances there are, there is, are, whatever. I think by Gary Oldman. And this is another one very much like Candyman. I see this movie. It's just like a lot of vampire movies, you know, like this is a love story and this is like a romance film, but it's just like a beautiful telling of the classic Dracula story. It's honestly probably one of my favorite versions. But if you ask me what my favorite vampire movie is from the decade, honestly, it's going to be from dusk till dawn. Um, <laughs> and there's mainly one reason why. And it's because Salma Hayek as Santanico Pandemonium in this movie literally makes me question my sexuality. I always thought I was straight until I watched this movie and like saw her dance sequence with the boa. And I'm like, I am sexually attracted to this woman. I have never seen somebody more beautiful and more attractive. And like in my, in my whole life, honestly, man or woman. Wow. Holy fuck Salma in this movie. But I also love George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino in this movie too. And just like this version of vampires, like how ugly they are. Like again, like Salma being as beautiful as she is and then turning into this like hideous creature and like the green blood and the fact that this is all happening in a bar called the Titty Twister. Something I realized um, after I posted my last episode last week is that I talked about the 80s without talking about Tom Savini, which is an absolute fucking disgrace and I'm ashamed of myself for it, but I can talk about him now because he's in this movie. Um, if you're not familiar with who Tom Savini is, he is mostly known for like his makeup and his like practical effects that he's done on the set of movies. Like literally any movie you can imagine from like the seventies, eighties, um, Tom Savini did the practical effects and the makeup on it. So like, for example, Friday the 13th, he did Dawn of the Dead. He did Day of the Dead. But in this movie, he plays an actor and I'm sure he probably did some of the effects too, but he's like a biker in the bar as they're getting attacked by the vampires. And he's just like such a fucking icon in it. This movie is just so fun. And like Brain Dead is just like so over the top gory. And the reason they had to make the blood green is because if they had this much blood in a movie and it was red, like real blood, it would have gotten an X rating. So they had to like navigate around that somehow and they decided to do it by turning the blood green. It's fucking incredible. Another movie I want to talk about because I feel like the 90s was also the decade that like black horror started coming out, you know? So, and like we got like a lot of black leads where we hadn't really before. So like previously, sure, we had had Night of the Living Dead where Ben is the main character and is played by a black man. Um, but he wasn't even written as a black man, fun fact. But we'll, I'll probably do an episode on that. Um, but like, so this decade 
we already talked about Candyman, right? We had uh, People Under the Stairs. And we also had Tales from the Hood in 1995, which is like one of my favorite anthologies. And this is yet another movie where like I didn't expect the plot twist and how it was going to end. But once it happens, it's like, oh my God, this all makes so much sense now. And now going into this decade, we were still getting like continuations of some of our franchises, right? So we were getting like more Child's Plays, um, Friday the 13th, uh, Halloween's and stuff. Like more things were coming out in the 90s. But like arguably a lot of those movies that are like the sequels, like they weren't nearly as good, even though I do love Child's Play too, I have to say. But one movie that did come out this um, decade that I think was like one of the best is one of the better ones in the franchise is Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Freddy in this movie, I think is at his peak. I think he's the scariest in this movie. It's basically Freddy on fucking crack. He is terrifying. He is so threatening. And just like the way that this was as meta as it was like a movie within a movie and like real life and like Wes Craven plays himself and Heather Langenkamp plays herself. Like I just love that shit. I talked about vampire movies and I'm leaving out one very important one that came out this decade and that's Interview with the Vampire, of course. And uh, just an iconic cast once again. So we had Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, a young Kirsten Dunst, um, and two gay lovers, basically. And that's never like explicitly shown, but we all know that Lestat and fucking Brad Pitt's character are in love. Nobody can hide that. There's some other gems that came out in the 90s. So like we got House on Haunted Hill. Um, we got Stigmata from 1999, which one is, is a movie that I feel like a lot of people love. It's okay to me. It's not like that great. Um, we got Stir of Echoes from 1999 which has one of the most disturbing fingernail scenes ever. Um, I can't even start talking about that right now. But in general, this really was an iconic year for horror. And uh, I guess I never really realized that before until I put all of these like into a list. And I was like, wow, there was some really classic horror films that came out this year or this decade, I mean. And I guess like being a 90s baby, I should have expected that. And I should have been more proud of that because um, I'm forever yearning for the 90s, okay? Um, I only lived a few short years in the 90s but just like the nostalgia it was just like nothing else what a fucking time to be alive truly still would like give my foot like paul sheldon does in the misery book uh to be able to live in the 80s so that still stands oh my god i'm looking at this and realizing that i forgot to also talk about funny games that came out in 1997 one of like the most fucked up movies probably ever created um not for your casual horror watcher and neither is audition or imprint which i mentioned during this episode so just like don't watch those if you're just like a everyday horror watcher and you don't like like gore or disturbing shit because funny games will absolutely fuck you up but god what a movie probably didn't mention it because i've been trying to block it out ever since i seen it great anyways i hope you guys like this episode i hope you guys heard about some 90s movies that you may have never heard of or have never seen that you're willing to check out uh next week we're going to be doing the 2000s and like just a fair warning that's probably going to be a much longer episode because like the 2000s, so again, I was born in 95, right? I'm 28 now. And the 2000s is when I started to see these movies in theaters and I started to see them as they were coming out. So I have like the theater experiences. I have the experiences from when they were like being released and just like how everybody reacted to them. And there's just for that reason, like a lot more movies that I watched in the 2000s because I was alive to see them. So it's going to be a lot harder for me to narrow down my top 10. It's probably going to take some time. I'll probably have a lot of honorable mentions, but make sure you join me for that next week. I'll be putting out a new episode on Wednesday per usual. And until then, follow me on TikTok and Instagram. It's horror underscore chronicles. I post on TikTok, especially basically every day. So until next time, I hope you watch more horror movies and stay spooky, my friends. 